Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Performance Anxiety. Buzz Osborne joins us this week and loves speaking with him. He's straightforward, no BS. You never have to guess what he's thinking. That is liberating, but it can be a little intimidating as an interview. He's got a new King Buzzo album out featuring Trevor Dunn. But before we get to that, Buzz gives me a Melvin's history lesson. He's always been an artist who forges his own path, regardless of trends or popular opinions, to create music that he wants to make. We touch on how he met Dale Crover, who an Iron Maiden Loverboy cover band, how amazing technology can be, and the wonderful things he's gotten through music. Most importantly, he's been his wife for 27 years. Pick up The Gift of Sacrifice by King Buzzo, featuring Trevor Dunn, wherever you normally get your music. Follow Melvin's on social media to find out about future tour plans. And check out at Real King Buzzo on Instagram for some great photography. Follow us at Performance ANX, subscribe, rate, and review. And let's get started with King Buzzo. This is uh, King Buzzo from the Melvins. I got a new album coming out called Gift of Sacrifice, and you're listening to Performance Anxiety. The first thing I want to do is thank you so much for this opportunity, man. This is this is uh, really cool. I never imagined I'd be speaking with uh, King Buzzo on my podcast. Really? How long have you been doing the podcast? Uh, this is about two i guess close to two years um uh, the first thing i want to find out about is is a little bit more about how you got into music in general i mean were you when did you start playing music was guitar your first instrument or was there something else that got you into it no guitar was my first instrument i think when i was in sixth grade we played uh we had like a um band like you know band and then i played trumpet but i don't even remember Oh, my daughter plays trumpet. <laughs> yeah, in hindsight, it was kind of a waste of time. <laughs> it was in junior high school, and I just didn't really care about it. You know? Yeah. So that was that was it. Okay. Other than that, I didn't really play. And then I started playing guitar near the end of high school. Oh, okay. I didn't play when I was younger. Like oh. Dale Drummer in the Melvins has played guitar since before he played drums. So since uh. he was, you know. Before he was ten. Oh my gosh! So yeah. You, so you were me. Same as Steven. Steven, the novel's a bass player. He's been playing bass since he was like eleven. You know. Oh, jeez. So okay. So you weren't one of those guys who was walking around high school, strumming away, showing everybody what you know, showing off to everybody. Not really, I played a little bit in high school. Okay. There was a acoustic guitar class you could take, but it was a waste of time. <laughs> With a really grumpy teacher who uh, 
I don't know what his problem was. You know, <laughs> yeah. it'd be like it's like what I would imagine taking a guitar class from Ted Kaczynski would be like. You know, oh, <laughs> that's rough. Oh Jesus! So yeah, I didn't. But despite that, that was when I was in tenth grade, I think. Yeah, and I didn't get an electric guitar until I was nearly out of high school. So, and you, the Melvins, you kind of crap, you, well, crap you, guitar. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> But no, you started the Melvins like right out of high school, right? Yeah. So they right away. So they were your first band, then I guess, right? Yeah, pretty much the only band. Um, uh, in hindsight, it seemed like it was a long time between the time I started playing and the time we were actually playing shows and stuff. But it really wasn't that long. Oh, really? How? So when? How, Less than a couple years. Oh, okay, okay. And but what, what were you listening to at that? back then what was what were your influences oh my god i started listening to rock music when i was about 12 okay and then ran the gambit because i didn't have any older siblings who were into cool music or uh i didn't have any older siblings and i didn't have any uh cool friends whose older brothers or sisters would play the music i didn't know anybody you know i didn't really have seventh eighth ninth grade I didn't really have too many people I hung out with, a little, but not really what I would consider friends. Okay. Not anymore. And then ninth or tenth grade, tenth grade, I started, tenth, yeah, around tenth grade, I started hanging out with Mike Dillard, who ended up being the uh, drummer in the Melvins. Right. And me and him are still friends. And we now do records. He was a original drummer. Yeah. We do records called that, you know, Melvins 1983, which is him playing drums and Dale playing bass. So that's oh, as close wow. as we'll get back. So he was out of the band by 84. Okay. And then we had, Dale, we had Dale. So Dale's been in, really been in the band almost the whole entire time. Okay. So, and, and then you started off with, was it Matt Lucan playing bass or, or drums? Like you yeah. said. Okay. But that was not going to, you know, I was kind of done with him before I was even out of high school. Oh, really? Okay. But, um, it wasn't a lot of options. I, I came from a, rural America town. Uh, and I'm not a good, you know, thinking back about the whole thing, I'm not, it wasn't, it wasn't a good fit for me. I would have been much better off in a bigger, much bigger school, uh, with, with way more people. This was a small school with maybe not even a hundred kids in my class. And uh. these were kids who had been to going to school together since they were in kindergarten whose parents had went to school together and, and it was it was a uh, not a and i came there when i was in about seventh grade oh okay and, um from a much smaller town up in the mountains near mount rainier washington oh wow and of uh, even less people i think the town when I, where i was born had about 900 people in it oh jeez. and where i ended up was a uh that, that place had less than 2,000 people in it so wow I moved to San Francisco. I never lived in a big city. Oh my gosh! Yeah. So, so yeah. you must you were just listening to stuff on the radio at that point, I guess. The radio was crap. If you wanted to hear, um, the AM pop type stuff from the mid seventies, then then it was right. It was perfect for you. you know? <laughs> but I could sometimes pick up the stations from Seattle. So I heard a little bit of that stuff, and that excited me into liking stuff like uh, Ted Nugent and Aerosmith and Kiss and 
okay. Black Sabbath and things like that, which I liked all that stuff. And then when I was about 12, I liked rock music. And I realized that, you know, they had these magazines like Cream Magazine and mm-hmm. I don't remember, a Hit Parader or stuff like that. Yeah. And the magazines were pictures of all kinds of bands by 77 or so, you know. Yeah. I was uh, um, 12, 12 or 13 in 1977. Okay. And uh, in, those, in those magazines, they had pictures of all these other bands that I didn't know anything about, like David Bowie and you know, eventually the Sex Pistols and Clash, and I'd see all these pictures, and then in the back of the magazines, they would have these, because where I lived, you couldn't even buy a record. Nothing. Oh, wow. No, no record stores where I lived. There was no anything. Oh, um, I think there was a town in Aberdeen, you could buy records there, but that was over 10 miles away from where I lived, and uh, I wasn't getting a lot of options when I was 12 to have uh, either my parents... <laughs> Drive me there, or I could have walked, I suppose. Oh, taken taking half a day to get there. And then the few times that I ever went in there when I was a kid, the two or three times I went in there, they kept accusing me of stealing things. So I I, I never went in. Oh, jeez. Um, but it was, you know, they had some stuff that might have been interesting, but they were not very helpful and super um, mean, kind of mean-spirited. And uh, so anyway, I would buy these. I noticed that you could buy these records in the back of the magazine. And so what I would do is I would save up my money because I always worked. I always had some kind of job doing some kind of something, whether it was mowing lawns or whatever it was, because I always wanted money. My family wasn't by no means uh, rich enough to sit there and buy me all kinds of stuff like that. So I would give my mom money and she would write me a check. Oh, wow. You know? And then weeks and weeks later, uh, records would arrive. And that's how I got oh. into Bowie and all these other people like that. And, and then from Bowie, I found out that he was interested in this guy named Iggy Pop. And so were the Sex Pistols. And, and so then I found out about the Stooges. All that stuff on my own. All in the 70s. Oh, man. And then, and then it just went from there. You know, this punk bands. And I found out about all that stuff without ever knowing anyone who liked any of that stuff. That's that's amazing. And, you know, the great thing about about that is you saying, you know, that was back in a time where you would find out about a band or an artist and you'd have to send away for it and wait for it. And so you've got that anticipation building and you're already invested into that music before you even you've even heard it. Well, I didn't know what to expect. Um, yeah. And people don't really have any idea when you ordered something in the 70s. The only game in town for delivery was the United States Post Office. Yeah, exactly. And their delivery time was, no matter where you sent anything for, was six to eight weeks. Yep, yep. And you had to wait for that check to clear. It it would even say it on the, uh, uh, when they they, uh, uh, would do their advertisements on TV, you could see an advertisement, you know, oh, wait, six, you know, buy this, it'll be six to eight weeks for delivery. Six to eight weeks. Yeah. Oh, the check has to clear. Okay. But the post office, it's like, if I ordered something from Seattle, it would take a minimum of six weeks for it to get there. Yeah. Minimum. It, that's ins- you could have walked <laughs> Seattle and back in less time than that. <laughs> you know, and, you, and and when you think about it, the delivery, the way that they deliver packages is no different than they do, they do now. No. They just had us over a barrel. Yeah. 
And so they screwed everybody for years. This is why, you know, anytime there's a monopoly, especially a government-run monopoly, yeah. people, the, the public gets screwed. Oh, absolutely. screwed. And so now, uh, amazingly, the, 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 with the advent of UPS and FedEx and those kinds of things, the post office is now able to do all those things it could never figure out how to do before. Oh, I know. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. And then, and you're right. I mean, people, kids today, I, mean, I know my kids, especially, my, I've got three teenagers. They don't appreciate having to wait for that stuff and letting that anticipation build because you can download everything instantly. I, honestly, I don't. I didn't appreciate it either. Yeah. <laughs> I buy stuff have... now. I can buy stuff now with a credit card. Yeah. And the delivery is there sometimes before the end of the day. I, it's crazy. And so I think that you know that's really worrying about what the customer thinks. That's getting it there for the customer, who in every transaction is always the most important person in the transaction. Exactly. But the post office did, never saw it that way. No, no. They thought you were just a mere, merely just a pain in their ass. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> you know. So, and at where and where I lived, where I first lived, um, they didn't even deliver mail to your house. You had to go into town wow. and pick it up at the post office. Jeez. You know, it's a total pain in the ass. People just, you know, I mean, I don't, I'm not a good old days type of guy. You know, I'm not. Right. And I'm really glad that uh. Things are a lot better now, a lot different. Life is better in every way now. Yeah. Way better. I, I than it ever was. Oh yeah. The exchange of the information is unbelievable now. I can't imagine how great it would have been for me to find out about a band and then see him playing instantaneously on YouTube the way you can now. <laughs> yeah. What's this band Blue Cheer? I want to see what that looks like and what that sound. There it is. What's this Captain Beefheart I've heard about? Well, there it is. Yeah. It's it's. It's absolutely wonderful, and I don't, I don't see a bad side to any of it. I think it's a great thing. Exchanger information is such an amazing tool, and we live in such a, an unbelievably tremendous and fun time that it's almost beyond comprehension. It is. It's incredible. Now, the one thing that that I've had this conversation with a lot of people on the show and off the show, and. The one thing that that keeps coming back is is you know the, the availability of everything is amazing and it's incredible to be able, like you said to be able to research a band oh what is who are these guys let me look them up yeah. immediately Boom. but but the one thing that that uh, a lot of people have mentioned is that with the availability of things like Spotify and and YouTube there isn't the investment in the music like if if I spent twelve dollars on a record or a cd i'm gonna spend time listening to it over and over again now you don't really have to do that it, do you think that's a concern for music in general or it, you don't think do you think that maybe doesn't matter so much well it matters monet- monetarily to to bands but see the thing with that kind of thing i mean maybe you would spend more time listening to it but i had plenty of records that i bought that I didn't like in the least or received as gifts as a kid. Yeah. It wouldn't matter how long sticks, the grand illusion would have sat there. I was never <laughs> gonna, you know, that I received as a, you know, Christmas present from an aunt or something, right. you know, you know what I, mean? I was not going to like it, uh, you know, or, or in high school getting it, you know, from someone, a, you know, foreigner double vision album. It would, it, oh, it could, yeah. you know, sit there forever. I mean, it's not going to appeal to me. That's a good point. That's okay. You know, that's a very fair point. So, I mean, if you, 
there's a few records, quite a few actually, maybe that have grown on me, but that continued to happen even later. There'll be something about it. Okay. When I could easily buy it, and then I didn't like it right away, and then eventually, you know what? I really like this. I had that happen with movies too. Oh yeah, movies, definitely that with movies. Art, books. You know, I, I really didn't like that book, and I realized it's the third time I've read it. You know? Right. <laughs> Something so, appealed to me about it. And I'm yeah. not sure. You know. Okay, that's a, that. That is a good point. Yeah, there's the whether you buy it or not, or you're listening to it on YouTube. If there's something that'll that might a little hook that'll grab you, even if if it's not obvious in the first place. Yeah, sometimes there's sometimes stuff just clicks. Yeah. Boom. Like you said, it'll grab you, or you just. I just had it. I've had it happen where all of a sudden I had a much bigger appreciation of something. Yeah. Or I never gave it that much of a chance to begin with. But people are people try to look for this thing like it was better in the old days, and I, I just disagree. I just don't. You know, I lived through the old days. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think it was better. And like people talk about, well, bands don't get paid now by the record labels. I'm like, well, when did they get paid by the record labels? <laughs> yeah, I, I just had you know? that talk recently with somebody. <laughs> It's like, you know, these. who were these check-writing angels back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s who, when, when bands were selling records that were just happily parting with their money and giving them... I, I know indie labels who shall go nameless who, who sold hundreds of thousands of records all through the 80s and never paid a band, the bands a nickel. Yeah, Nothing. Look, at, look at bands like Creed of Clearwater Revival. I mean, they, they didn't get anything, and they sold millions. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Well, you know... Um, on a major label, it's one thing. Um, on an indie re- record label, it's, you know, per dollar invested, it's a much bigger ripoff if they don't pay you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's okay. That's good. That's a good point. Too. I've never understood why people complain about the ripoff of a major label when there's indie labels to bitch about. You know? <laughs> by and large, the biggest ripoff of them all. A lot of times they think that they have, that since they're not corporate, they think that they have some kind of, moral edge on everyone else and it's like no actually you're the least moral of anyone i've ever dealt with (laughs) oh man oh you know and uh uh, um and usually there if you if you find some hipster label with a bunch of you know hipster punk rock type people if you start talking about stuff like money then they think you're not cool yeah you're just being some drag and so they really don't care about not paying you you know yeah I can't believe that you would do that with some ethics clause in yeah. there. And I was going to go, I just want to go, look, you know, you owe us money and you should pay us the money. And I don't really care what you think about that. Yeah. You know, sometimes that works, but by and large, unless you're already hooked up with good people, you'll never get a nickel. Nothing. That's you know? awful. So it really doesn't matter who you sign with. Uh, you know, the contracts are generally to keep you out of court right. unless you have something to, for them to win or have a bunch of money. Um, uh, there's really no, so suing them is not going to do you any good. Mm. They'll just go bankrupt. But whereas like when we were on Atlantic records, you have a big contract with a company like that because they have something to lose okay. in a court yeah. battle. So they'll, they will abide by the contract. They'll go right down every step of the way and give you everything that you are owed. And they'll do it. They'll, they'll abide by every single word in it. Vandy label, you can sign any contract you want. It, you know. Yeah. You know, F. Lee Bailey is your as your as your attorney. It's not going to make any difference. Mm. They're just not going to pay you. You know. So you find labels. That's why I've always found 
labels like Boner Records, who we did records with in the late 80s and the early 90s. Yeah. That paid us, Tom Flynn has paid us everything we were owed every six months for that entire time. That's you know, fantastic. Once I find something like that, why would I go and take his records away from him or do the, I could have easily done that after this much time. But I think, no, he's treated us right. I'm going to leave it. And Ipecac Records, we've been on Ipecac since for more than 20 years. Yeah, it was 99, I think. Everything we're owed every six months. That's amazing. Why would I look for something else? That's awesome. And, that, you know? and I think that's part of, of the, uh, the beauty of having an artist-run label. You know, they've, yeah, they know. I have, I've, I've been in other situations with hipster artist run labels where they never paid us anything. Oh, geez. So, you know, you, you, it's, it's, or they pay you once and then you never see another dime out of them or you never see anything. And I always laugh when people go, well, they never send a statement. So I go, I can make a statement for you that says anything. Yeah. What you want is a check. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you, Fuck your statement. Yes. Like, yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You know, I did all this work and sold all these records for you and you don't want to come through on your end or you think I'm being lame for suggesting it, you know, okay, whatever. Yeah. Well, you know, as it is right now for indie bands or, you know, underground bands, not like, uh, not unlike us, if you want to make something like a seven inch or a 10 inch, it's very expensive to do that. It's very yeah. expensive. And so you really have to be careful with your money. I, you know, I think it's uh, bands have to really watch out with those sorts of things. And I think eventually it'll come back around to where they'll realize that things like CDs really are a better deal and they sound really good. Yeah. And, and, um, people will realize that and the vinyl will probably go the way of the pet rock at some point. Again. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm guessing. It's kind of pricing itself out of the market right now. And I think most yeah. people, I, Hazelmeyer, Tom Hazelmeyer, who we do a lot of limited edition stuff like that with, um, said that, I can't remember how he found this, but he found something that showed that less than 40% of all vinyl that gets bought even gets listened to. Yeah, but it, it tends to become a collector's item, you know. Which is fine. I mean, I, I collect all kinds of stuff. I understand it. And the other thing is, is there's some amount of people who will buy vinyl, so we'll make some vinyl. And when we do, we'll try to make it really cool and silkscreen covers. And yeah. I like the art artwork on it and crazy vinyl colors and also all sorts of things along those lines. But yeah. beyond that, it's immaterial to me um, because the most important thing really is the music. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, we'll do it because there's a small market out there of people who will buy vinyl that we appreciate. And, you know, I, I, I will still do it until it doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah. Yeah, ex exactly. You know, if it, if it's going to help you guys out and get the music out there to somebody, then, then why not? Now, I've got a, a question for you uh, about the name Melvins. How did you guys decide on, on Melvins? Oh, uh, we wanted something that was kind of like the Ramones. Okay. That was it. That's it? <laughs> it didn't sound like a punk band. didn't sound like a metal band. We wanted to play a combination of weird stuff along those lines and not have our name pigeonhole us. We also wanted to make sure our artwork for our uh, record covers that didn't pigeonhole us in one form or another, you know? Okay, okay. And uh, we wanted to make sure that we didn't belong to any club, whatever it was. We don't have any brother bands or people out there that are, you know, working the same, you know, like, pop, we're, pop, we're a pop punk band. Yeah. Okay, you know? We're a band that sounds like, you know, 
um, uh, something on Lookout Records from a long time. Okay, who cares? <laughs> I never wanted to be that. Well, you managed to, to definitely avoid any pigeonholes, that's for sure, because your music is so varied. But I wanted to ask you a little bit about Dale for a second. Um, yes. You've, I heard, and, and I believe this was in an interview that I heard trying to research for this show, that you you found Dale in a cover, an Iron Maiden lo, slash Loverboy cover band? Mostly Loverboy. Mostly <laughs> Well, how do- yeah, I mean, there's nothing else going on. I was in Aberdeen. He lived in Aberdeen, and uh, I'd seen him play in that band a few times, or one, twice. Okay. And I thought, wow, that guy's good. And what we were looking for at that point was a guy who played, who could play heavy metal stuff. Okay. Because I always liked the way those drummers played. You know, I always liked the way heavy metal drummers played. I thought they were all good drummers. Mm-hmm. I was a huge and remain a huge fan of the Who. I wanted a, a Keith Moonish kind of guy who wasn't worried about breaking his drum heads. Right. A little regard for his equipment in general, and uh, played the drums like it was uh, like his very life depended on it. Okay. You know, I wanted something that was tribal and uh, pounding, and somebody who could expand beyond that. But I always thought heavy metal drummers were really good, by and large. There's some hair metal drummers, obviously, weren't very good. But usually, <laughs> even the cheesiest metal bands had good drummers. Okay. Usually. Usually. You know? So I, I wanted to take a guy like that and have him do what we were doing. Because we, 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 we always wanted to incorporate stuff like that from our uh, into what we were doing as well. Okay. Lots of heavy metal stuff and, you know, things along those lines. But then as well as that, you know, birthday party, you know, Captain Beefheart. We've always described ourselves as, for you know decades that we're Captain Beefheart playing heavy metal. You know? uh, yeah, I, I actually that makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty much what we're doing. What, I would say that makes sense. How would how would Captain Beefheart if he was going to write a heavy metal song? What would he do? I think that's what we're trying to do. That's I never I never put that together. That's that is perfect. Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't get that, uh, but that's okay. Yeah. yeah. It's Lots a, of people don't understand how I've been able to make a living playing music at all. <laughs> <laughs> was the plan from the beginning to play something slower and heavier than Maiden and Loverboy anyway? Or, um, well, you know, I never liked Loverboy, but I certainly liked Maiden, some of it. Yeah. Uh, but there were lots of bands playing stuff along those lines that we liked, like Flipper and, and Black Sabbath and mm-hmm. um, Black Flag. And lots of bands had slower songs. Um we were big fans of uh, "Damaged," "Damaged" on the uh, "Damaged" album by Black Flag. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. And you know, just lots of Pink Floyd stuff was slower, and mm-hmm. we didn't think it was we were inventing anything new. If anything, we were just expanding on what was already there. And and, and there was lots of bands that were doing, you know, hardcore really fast. We liked that too, but it had gotten really stale for me by about 1985, and so uh, I kind of walked away from it. Unless the bands were really exceptionally good, you know. Yeah. And uh, um, that was few and far between. You know, 50s generation straight edge bands weren't something I was interested in by about 84, 85. (laughs) I couldn't care less. I mostly didn't like their message. I thought their bands were crap. Um, I I didn't have any of that, you know, holier-than-thou posturing. I wanted to, at that time, you know, get hammered. 
and uh, run around chasing chicks and yeah. playing music that was uh, had no redeeming social value whatsoever. <laughs> well, congratulations, man! Yeah, and and um, you know we wanted to you know be heavy metal with throbbing gristle thrown in there, you know. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's, and the Swans. That was another band we really liked. Oh, I love Swans. Certainly playing lots of slow stuff. And, um, you know we're a lot more avant-garde or Ava Gardner than people think. <laughs> well, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm just checking out uh, Colossus of destiny. I mean, that's, yeah. that's crazy. And that's what it is. What it's two tracks. One's 59 minutes and 23 seconds. And the other's five seconds. Oh, right? I don't know. <laughs> I haven't checked. <laughs> um, I think we were trying to do something. You had to back it up to hear it. At the beginning, but I don't know if it ever worked. Oh, yeah. God, I remember. Lots of, Destiny, lots of Destiny people were like, oh, that's just uh, some noise record. It's like, actually, it's not really. It's got a meter and a flow to it, and it goes all over the place, and it's not just noise record. I mean, if you listen to, you know, um, there's lots of other records that are much noisier than that. Yeah. Like, I'm not sure what it is people. I don't know. You can't please anybody. No. I, I, I quit worrying about that thing that kind of stuff a long time ago and just started concentrating on doing what I thought was good and figuring that if I thought it was good, there'll be other people who'll think it's good. Right. Well, that's it. Now you've got not, not, not trying to be perverse. I'm not being perverse. If I was being perverse, I'd be making stuff that even I didn't like. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, no, that, and that's, that's not what I'm doing. No. And that, that's the, one of the things that, that I've kind of discovered is that, you know, you know what you like, you're not afraid to, to do it or to say it. And, uh, you know, that's, if you don't like it too bad. Yeah. you know, my ideas about stuff like that can change too, but I'll see online forums about the band and stuff like that. And they're just wrong, wrong, wrong about everything, yeah. about our motivations, about what we think, about what kind of people we are. Um, it's, 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 it's odd to me that people, especially when they think weird stuff, or, or things like, you know, that we're jealous of the grunge people who made millions of dollars. It's like, what kind of a person do you think I am? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm jealous of anything like that. I, I, I'm not that kind of a guy. I'm, uh, I keep my head down and keep working. Yeah. Do you know what we're doing or not? You don't like it? Well, there's nothing I can do about that. I've dealt with that my whole life. People who don't like what I'm doing. I'm not, not making the music for them, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You, you got to make the music that you want to make. Yeah, that's it. And we always, and we've said millions of people won't like this. <laughs> and it's to do what a lot of these other bands have done. They've had to, they've had to go through a lot of, of horrific stuff. Or because of their success, they, they've had a lot of horrific things happen. And, you know, if that's the cost, may, that may not be worth it to a lot of people. Well, I've had a fair amount of success and a uh, um, fair amount of publicity and uh, uh, fame as far as that's concerned. And I don't feel like I would go crazy if it happened to me. Um, but I'm also not concerning myself with it. As far as I'm concerned, I'm a professional musician who makes his living playing music and has no one underwriting what he's doing. And that has been the case literally for decades. I don't feel anything other than massive gratitude for that. That's amazing. That's fantastic. You know, I don't feel like I got dealt the wrong hand or I did the wrong thing. No, I did the exact right thing. 
Yeah. Music gave me everything in my life that's good. I met my wife as a result of music. See? I, you know, and me, we've been married for the better part of 27 years. That's by far wow. the best thing that's ever happened to me in my entire life. That's and awesome. I only got that because I played in a band that put me in a position where I would meet her eventually. You know? Yeah. That's how it worked. So had I never played music, I never would have met her. Man, and she was not a fan of our band. She didn't really even know who we were. Oh, really? No, not really. I think she was vaguely aware of us, but she wasn't a fan. Wow. Because we're an underground weird band. We're not like, you know, it's not like we're MTV. Are you kidding? Yeah. Yeah. Well, never happened. Almost never happened. We weren't famous like that. We were famous to underground people. We're famous in that world. Yeah. Not in the. It's not like she would have even known who we were, but she was into underground music, too. It's just didn't happen to cross our path. So that was attractive to me as well. So I never felt like she was only interested in me because of that, that kind of music. But had I not been involved in music, I met her through mutual friends that never would have happened. So that's not lost on me. That's and and she's a, a, an artist herself. Yeah. Graphic design. We've worked together for the better part of 30 years. Congratulations on almost 27 years too. That's, that's amazing. That's yeah. Yeah. It's a long time. It's a long time to do anything. Let alone, you know how many people we've known in that amount of time have been married, divorced and married again and divorced and in in, in the same amount of time that we've been married. We've only each only ever been married once. (laughs) That's fantastic. My wife and I were going to be, I think we think we're 19 years married, 20 years together this year. So, and same thing, you know, a lot of people we know, gone through multiple marriages and it's yeah yeah and so you know i don't take that lightly either it's like i said it's not lost on me the importance of that had let's say i picked up the guitar and and all i got out of it was my relationship with my wife that's way more than i could have ever hoped for you know that's that's so wonderful to hear i love hearing that that's way more than i could have ever hoped for i win yeah Yeah, exactly along those lines is simply extra yep you know and as a result of that extra i am willing to work my ass off and play all the time live and make records all the time and do all kinds of crazy stuff because i appreciate and want to do those things out of appreciation for the people who have put me in a position to make that possible and see i love hearing this stuff this is this this is the kind of stuff this is the kind of stuff that i love here now yeah for either Melvin's or or the King Buzzo stuff, do you have a process for it? I mean, you're you're putting stuff out regularly. I mean, it's it's yeah, amazing. Of, do you have yeah, a, a, a time? Uh, there's no. You mean like a process of work? You mean? Yeah, like like do you, do you sit down to write something, or do you just noodle away while you're doing something else, and it and it comes? Is is there? I know most people don't have a set process for doing it, but is there a way that it happens more often than not? Well, I mean, pretty much every time I touch a guitar, I'm thinking in terms of songwriting. Okay. Um, the guitar itself, I've never had lessons. I don't know how to read music. I don't know, even know how to keep, like, a, to count time. I don't do I do it my own way, weird way. Okay. Dale is very fortunate. I'm very fortunate that Dale can interpret my strange <laughs> ideas, how kind of stuff works. Yeah. And um, I have used to kind of concern myself about that because I felt like I was missing something by not knowing those things. But now I just couldn't care less. Yeah. I just couldn't, I don't care to ever know any of those kinds of things. I do just fine. Um, and so a lot of things that are, uh, are, uh, uh, would be an exercise for me now in the last 10 years has been like figuring out another band song, just figuring it out. 
Okay. And that's kind of practice for me. Okay. Um, you know, like a figure out a really hard Led Zeppelin song or figure out a really hard Alice Cooper song. You know, we've done that for years, that kind of thing. And okay. Figuring if we can play this stuff in a way that sounds pretty good, it'll only help us. That's it. You know, mm-hmm. and we do it for fun. We love to play. You put us in a room, we'll, we'll start playing. There's just nothing around it. But I'll do that at home for practice. Lots of stuff that I would, you know, I never would play. You know, um, we would never, we'd never see the light of day anywhere. Right. It was just for practice. And the other thing I'll do is um, I just start playing riffs in a wide variety of crazy tunings, some of which are, are on my own tunings. Oh, wow. And um, in the last few years, I've really gotten into open E and open G tuning. I think on their last album we did, no, the record, record before the last one, mm-hmm. I don't believe there was a standard tuning song on it. Oh, you wow. Know? It was all in, in open tuning or, or a weird tuning of my own creation. Oh, and I don't care about those kinds of, you know, people getting all weird about, you know, not too many people get weird about it. But uh, um, when they do, I just think, you know, why? These are only tools that will help you be creative. They're not going to hurt you. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you know? I, I love open tuning. Lighten up, you know? Yeah. <laughs> When you go in to record for, for for either Melvin's or your, your solo stuff, is the material worked out beforehand? Do you lot do do much experimenting or writing in the studio? Not much writing in the studio. We'll do. We have recorded. We have written and recorded probably you know, the better part of five hundred songs. Yeah. So it's a um, after a while, you really start to look for ways you haven't done things before. Yeah. And yeah. So we'll do, we're more likely now to record stuff when we just about have it down as opposed to flogging the life out of it for months and months on end before we record it. Oh, okay. Um, I think it gives it the songs, not always, but sometimes it'll give it a little bit of a life that it doesn't have after you've beaten it into the ground. Yeah. With massive rehearsal. Um, if you, if you have something that a guy, a musician, you know, uh, a person has barely able to do it and they're a really good player, they're going to play that, that, that's, that's a performance you're not going to get after, you know, two weeks of really hardcore rehearsal. Right. And so there's, you know, especially in the last 10 years, we've adapted that into our recording style a lot more than we ever would have. Okay. You know, so it's like, here's a song. I have this all worked out. I'll show it to you guys. They're all extremely good players. That's one thing I've been very happy about is that, all well, except for our very first bass player, everyone else I've played with have been exceptionally talented when it came to playing. And the guys I'm playing with now, Steven and Dale, I would say arguably they're as good as anybody on the planet. And yeah. I completely uh, feel honored it's an honor and a privilege to play with those guys. And so anything I bring in, if we run through it four or five times and they've got it down pretty good, sometimes we'll just track it. Yeah. See how it goes. Oh, you know? cool. Put a fill here, do that, track it. That sounds great. And it's, no one's ever noticed that that's what happened on some, on some, like you couldn't go through the record to pick out, oh, which ones did you rehearse and which ones didn't you rehearse? Right. You can't tell. No. You never be able to. You know, yeah, because they all sound good because that's where these guys are at musically. 
Okay. You know, I think that's what people like Miles Davis picked up on, especially during his electric era, was that they might be able to play this better if we rehearsed it a bunch, but it's not going to be better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? And That's so I point. think we're much more likely these days to embrace that kind of attitude than we ever would would have before, you know? Like, We'd have been too afraid to do that. Like, it wouldn't work. And then we realized, no, this will work. These days are good. Yeah. They know what they're doing, you know? <laughs> the professionals. Yeah. yeah you trust their instincts. You trust their judgment. You trust the flow of the music. And you play something for somebody and they get really excited about it. And they're into it. That's not going to be like that in two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It'll exactly. be like that now. And I want to record that moment. Not always, but sometimes I want to record that moment and, and savor it and realize that, you know, we really only played this song three or four times. And then, it, and that's how it is on the record. Yeah. We'll go back and do some guitar overdubs and stuff like that. But, um, but the basic drums and sometimes the basics of the song are, are, Done in that way. Lots of times the drums. Not always, but, you know, lots more now than we ever would have. We would never have considered that back in the, a long time ago because we would have had – studio was really expensive, and now we have our own yeah. studio, and uh, uh, we needed to have our shit wired before we ever got through the door. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And now I do have a, a question about the solo stuff that you're doing. I mean, you've done yeah. – you've been a Melvin, the Melvin, for – or since the early 80s so you know almost 33 83 god but you've just started doing solo work um is there a reason you just now getting into doing some some you know solo acoustic albums well i did i did my first solo acoustic record um in 2014 right right which is uh this machine kills artists and yes. so that one i decided i wanted to do it i kind of stuck my toe in the water a little bit here and there and then uh reception from that and it seemed like it would work and then I did, recorded the whole album of just me and an acoustic guitar and uh, then did a whole world tour with just me and an acoustic guitar that's awesome so then that was great and then um, knew I could do it I did I think I did a hundred shows on acoustic that year you know wow jeez yeah and so then when this came up I knew I wanted to do something different on this album and uh, we did a lot of work between 2014 and now and um, it was time to do it so I knew I wanted it to be different. Uh, so originally my plan was, and how most of it was recorded more than a year ago, was to have acoustic guitar with modular synth and vocals. That's okay. what my original plan was. Okay. You know? And so I wanted it to be if, you know, like throbbing gristle meets acoustic guitar meet, you know. Okay. Uh, uh, that kind of thing, sort of. Those kind of elements mixed in. I had never heard anybody do that. And then no. about a year, a little, over a year ago, I was talking to Trevor Dunn, who I play with also sometimes in Phantom Moss. Yes. And he um, 
I said, you know, I want to do this acoustic thing again. Uh, we should do a tour together. And if we're going to do a tour together, we should do like a tour EP where we play together. And maybe on the shows, you know, you can play first and then uh, maybe we could play some songs together at some point during the show or something like that. It might be fun. He was like, that sounds great. So I had my acoustic record done or pretty much recorded most of it. And then I said, uh, uh, come on out. This was, this would have been February or March of, you know, last year. Okay. uh, uh, He came out he was here for two days. We figured we'd get enough for uh, this EP. And I go, well, try playing on one of these songs. We'll put it on the EP. Maybe we'll just have this version of bass on. And the only instruction I told him was to play overplay. Okay. Sure, you overplay. I really like your bowing, and I really like you know the plucking. So do both of that, but just overplay, knowing that if I gave him that much creative freedom, he wasn't really gonna overplay. You know. Right. But gonna really give it all he's got. And so we did a song. And I was like, oh, my God. As soon as I heard it with the, with my song, it was already done. I was like, that sounds so good. And so he ended up playing on almost the whole record. Oh, wow. Which is why it's a King Buzzo with Trevor Dunn record and not a King Buzzo and Trevor Dunn record because we didn't really write anything together. You know? Okay, because that, that was going to be my next question is, did he have any input in the writing process? I, I gave him, he did a couple of instrumental things that, that are on there. Um, that wouldn't have been. And then there's some songs on the EP that aren't on the album that might have been, you know, so. Okay. But it, to call it a Trevor Dunn and King Buzzer record, it just isn't true. We might do one of those in the future, but um, that would be more, you know, more of a collaboration. Okay. okay. And less of him coming in and, re- and recording his parts into, you know, over what was already done, you know. Uh, okay. Okay. Some of the songs on Gift of Sacrifice are, are longer than the songs on on uh, This Machine Kills Artists. Was that conscious to, to just kind of stretch things out a little bit, or was it just the way the writing went? Yeah, um, it was conscious. Okay. Um, I wanted to get more into longer songs a little bit. Not okay. all of them are longer, but... Um, and there's a lot more production on this record. Yeah, yeah. A lot more. Um, as far as, like, you know, weirder... There's way more, there's no modular synth in the first one. There's all kinds of wacky modular synth stuff, as well as, you know, doubled up guitars and bass and just all, and vocals, all kinds of vocals. And we just really worked on this in a much different attitude. The other record is a lot more straight ahead. Okay. Which I think yeah. worked really good. I'm really happy with that record. I wouldn't change a thing. Oh, I love it. I love it. Yeah. But this one is a more, uh, um, more of a production, I guess. Yeah. But what's funny was the first one is people who just sounds like the Melvins with acoustic guitar. I go, what the fuck would it sound like? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And Bob Dylan sounds like Bob Dylan on acoustic guitar. Weird. No shit. That's crazy how that works out. I know. I can't believe it. (laughs) I believe that Joan Baez sounds like Joan Baez when she plays acoustic guitar. (laughs) Strange as it sounds. So you mentioned that the, the modular synth, is that what's going on at the end of Delayed Clarity?
there's a, it's a bunch of stuff like that. We also do me and me and um, Toshi Kasai who recorded it. Who records all of our stuff. Me and him are really good at you know, making crazy sounds out of almost nothing. <laughs> well, we've been doing that for a long time. Yeah. Well, I noticed that there's a there's a bunch of songs that end with with something really weird going on. It's it's I love yeah. it. That's awesome. Yeah, that's part that's part of the plan. To take you out of the realm. Like my wife, when I played her the whole album, which is like, we mastered this thing December 19th. Okay. And so I've been living with it since then, since before that, when I'm listening to the uh, mixes of it. Mm -hmm. But uh, um, now is when I can enjoy the record. And so when I, you know, like right up until about the time it comes out, then I've moved on. It's about, you know, five or six months. I've lived with the record before anybody has ever heard it. Yeah. Hardly, and then I move on. Well, I played the whole thing for my wife, obviously a bunch of times. And I always care what she thinks, and she's just like, "You and Trevor have created something I have something I haven't ever heard before." You know? Yeah, the thing is different than anything I've ever heard before. It, which is, which is, uh, ha I was happy she said that because she's not a good liar. Oh, good. <laughs> that's that's but, a good so, quality. I believe, you know? Well, I was listening to it, uh, and, and to me. Housing, luxury, and energy is is just a beast of a song. It's and yeah. I'm not blowing smoke when I, I'm, I'm seriously telling you that it is one of the best songs I've heard in years. Absolutely love that song. I've, I've been playing it over and over and over again. Yeah. I like that name too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, uh, what was the other, uh, well, delayed clarity uh, is also another yeah. favorite of mine. Delayed clarity. Uh, I think I wrote, I wrote both of those, both of those I wrote in my living room on the same guitar. So, Oh, wow. Kind of similar a little bit, but not, not tremendously. Yeah. Are these examples, the songs, are these examples of you coming up with your own? To weird tunings or are these just standard open I tunings? I tunings goes around. Yeah. How are you going to play it live though? Is it? Is it? No, I can figure it out. Oh, that's cool. That's awesome. Yeah, I know it's got to be one of the ones I use. So, <laughs> so you keep keeping track of them somehow. Figured out. I figured out. You know, without too much trouble. <laughs> Probably barely even have to play it. I'll know it. You know, recorded all that stuff over a year ago. Yeah. It's and so I've recorded a hell of a lot since then. I've done a ton of touring. Yeah. Oh. So I'm not sitting there playing those riffs over and over. That, that, yeah. I mean, and that's one of the things. I mean, you're constantly working. You are constantly yeah. writing music. It's it's you're a machine with it. Yeah. It's a, like I said. It's it's the deal I made. Yeah. That's it's amazing you know, to me. I think that's what people should do. I mean, if I was a huge band like Tool or. You know, um, any of these bands, I would do 60 to 100 shows a year, even if I didn't have a record out. That would be, you know? well, it's, how many shows do you do per year now? Uh, between 80, to 100, 80 to 120 shows a year, depending. Wow. You know, sometimes a few less, but generally it's about 80 to 120. 
Well, how did how did the whole King Buzzo persona come about? The guys in Boner, when I went around Boner in the eighties, the, the people that worked there um, gave me that nickname because I was so opinionated. <laughs> <laughs> that's it that's it huh that was it oh man that's awesome did your gear change a lot throughout these the uh the years are you still do you, do you run through different do you try a whole lot of different stuff or because i know your music is can be pretty experimental do you experiment a lot with different uh guitars amps pedals oh yeah um i've always changed stuff i'm a big believer in new equipment i'm not a vintage guitar guy Oh, okay. I think that, you know, people like guitar is 70 years old, so it has a better sound to it. Really? Well, you're still a shitty guitar player. No matter what guitar you play. You can can think that your crap sounds a lot better because you're playing a 1950s Les Paul, but I disagree. (laughs) Well, do you you have a favorite piece of gear uh, for doing the King Buzzo shows? Well, what 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 I recorded... Most of the stuff with was uh, these Bluefield guitars that I bought live for playing live. They're just new. Okay. And I wanted ones that had an internal pickup so I could just plug them in. Ah, oh, yeah. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't want to put, hook up some, you know, uh, jerry-rigged setup. You know, I wanted, to be, mm-hmm. wanted it to be able to handle me walking around because I'm not sitting down to play. I'm standing up to play acoustic guitar. Right. I can't, I can't really sit down and play. I don't do good. I'm not good at it. Even in the studio, I stand up when I play. Okay. I play better. I don't know why. And then, but um, those are what I play live. So some of that's on the, these, 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 uh, this record, this new record, the first record, I didn't have those guitars yet. So I played a Buck Owens American and I played a Gibson that Toshi had. Gibson okay. Acoustic, Toshi had. But both these records, the acoustic guitars are not ran through amplifiers. Neither is the bass. It's all acoustically mic'd. Oh, wow. Yeah, but live I run through an amp. But there's no amps on either one of these records either. On the new one, no amp for the bass, no amp for the guitar, the acoustics. And on the first one, there's no – it's just it's just weird miking techniques is all it is. Was that on purpose uh, just to get the, uh, the like that deep, heavy sound from the guitar? Uh, well, or you, you know, with the acoustic guitar and maybe I'll go – maybe I should double it up or – I'll double up a couple parts here and there. That's about okay. it, really. It's just through micro. I'd stand in front of a wide array of microphones, and as long as they weren't out of phase, and sometimes if, even if they were, yeah. um, <laughs> depending on what it like, we would go with it. We did all kinds of things. Like in the first one, especially, we did some stuff like play as close to put a put another guitar on a stand right up by in front of you playing, and then put a microphone inside the other guitar. Oh, wow. And so then you put the guitar in the same tuning that you're in and then play as close to it as you can and use the sound out of the inside of the guitar you're playing into, you know? That is awesome. That's that's the kind of shit I love. I love we hearing that. Tons of that. So much of that stuff, I don't even remember all of it, oh, you know? Man. Well, the good thing is you don't have to, really, after it's done. Well, you know, it's funny. We've always done kind of st- that kind of stuff on records. I rarely use exactly my same live setup that I do on records. I mean, records are, I view live and records as completely polarly op- opposite things. And I really don't believe that if someone's listening to one of our albums at home through a stereo, that they think that they're seeing a live show. I don't believe that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we approach the records not unlike the way you would approach making a movie. 
Okay. And um, it's not supposed to be live. I mean, we can play it live, but a lot of times our, we take a lot of liberties with our stuff live. It have to sound like the way it sounds on the record. I don't, never worried about that. I, I, I learned that lesson really vividly when I was a, always been a huge Who fan. And when I heard Live at Leeds, most of those songs are so much radically, so radically different than what they are on the record that yeah. I realized, oh, you don't have to do that. It's still really good. No, and that's one of the things I always liked about going to live shows is when, when the it? band plays something a little differently from the record anyway. I, that's yeah. kind of the point of going to a live show. It never bothers me. Never. No, I love it. I don't care what they do. I, I like bands that take liberties. If they want to do medleys, if they want to do cover songs, it's like it's all fun. Yeah. Part of the juice of playing live. And then the studio, I have a wide variety of guitars from, you know, uh, uh, mostly new uh, I still have my first Les Paul, but that doesn't make it on record too often. Um, right. And uh, that's been funny. I've talked about this before in interviews where people will go, you know, I don't really like it because now I use a uh, live. I'll use these things called the elect- from the electrical guitar company. Either they're uh, uh, Travis beans or they're just regular ones. And um, they're aluminum and some of them are aluminum and wood hybrid. And people go, I don't like the way those sound. It's like, okay, you're out of your mind. You think I've never, I liked your Les Paul a lot better. It's like, okay, first off, you think I've never AB'd these? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Ever? You know, are you, are you, are you drunk? <laughs> no, go, well, like the sound on Stoner Witch with the, with the Les Paul sounds a lot better. I go, well, what song? Like Revolve. I go, Revolve is actually, um, I borrowed a Jackson from the engineer and the overdub is with a Mustang and the solo is played on a, on a Fender Stratocaster. <laughs> oh, oh, man. You don't even know what you're, you don't even know what you're hearing. You know? <laughs> it's just, it's so absurd. Yeah. Think about that's like, what are you talking about? You know, I mean, I love these new, uh, the new down electros. I think they're awesome guitars, brand new. And I had a silver tone. Down electros is uh, from the '60s, but the down electros way better. The new down electro plays better, sounds better, everything. Oh, cool. You know, I'm not a vintage guy. I just don't care about that. I think you know, if you take somebody like Hendrix or any good guitar player or Pete Townsend, they're gonna sound good on any guitar you give them. That's true. That is very you know? true. You can have the greatest vintage guitar of all time and the greatest vintage amp of all time. I can play through that, and you give Hendrix, give give Hendrix the brand new amp with a brand new guitar. He's still gonna blow me out of the water. Yeah, <laughs> and you hand all that to me, and I'm still gonna sound like I'm a monkey banging on something. Right. That's it. You know, we are firmly convinced that you can put us in the studio with any kind of equipment. Drums, guitars, ba- basses, amps—we could make it work. I and I firmly believe you too. Absolutely, We're, we, that stuff doesn't intimidate us. I'm not. I'm not. A, I'm not a slave to my gear. You know? That's awesome. That's awesome because you hear that a lot. Is it guys are are, are freaking out because they're something in their rig broke and it's it's you know a vintage piece of equipment. And now they think they're screwed. So. Well, don't take vintage stuff on the road. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> do equipment and, and use that on the road. And preferably, if you can, especially with stomp boxes, find stuff that you can buy just about anywhere. Now I've done a bunch of my own stomp boxes. So. Oh, really? 
Yeah, I did a distortion box, the pessimizer, and a compressor called the compressimizer. And I'm going to do another one pretty soon, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. Oh, uh, is that through uh, like a, a Buzz series? Hilbish. Hilbish Design. Okay. I also use his preamps, which are uh, a takeoffs of Sun Beta Lead preamps. You know, oh, cool, from cool. The, from the 70s. I, I think they're, they're better. You know? They're more hot, they sound more hot rotted. Oh, awesome. That is yeah, awesome. I love- all right, so I don't use – I haven't for a long time. I don't use tube amps. I haven't for decades. But I have some tube amps that we use in the studio. But, they, you know, tube amps on the road are a big pain in the ass. Yeah. And, you know, they don't work and they things happen to them. And uh, I need gear that can take a beating. Yeah, exactly. I play the shit out of my gear. I need gear that will work. I've tried a massive wide variety of <clears throat> guitar cabinets, speaker setups, um, amplifiers, and I've hit on this, and I feel really comfortable knowing that I love my guitar sound, and no one else in the world is using this exact same setup. Nobody. I'm very happy about that. Okay. Well, and it's not because of somebody else, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, I know you had plans to tour, and, uh, you know, everybody's no, yeah. plans to tour have really kind of gone down the toilet lately. Yeah. Are you planning on doing any live streams or, or touring later in the year? Everybody's trying to tour later in the year. That's not going to happen. Okay. Um, we'll see what happens. If they come up with a miracle cure, you know? Yeah. And then if I cancel it, it'll only be by degree. It'll be okay. like, I'll cancel the first few weeks. And then if it come, becomes obvious that I have to cancel the next few weeks, you know, that's what I'm going to do. Okay. Okay. So it, it, where, how can people find out about that? Is, is I'll announce social, it. Is there a social media presence where people can look for you? In- yeah, you can look at the Melvins or you can look at, you know. It's all out there. My tour dates aren't—they're not hiding. Right. <laughs> They've been on sale since January. And people who want to see the show are going to know how to find you anyway. Yeah, yeah, just like you do any other show. Yep. We're living through some strange times right now. Yeah, yeah, we really are, and it's—it's—it's it, it's funny because I've seen so many people having to cancel shows and then doing live streams now. Well, I mean, I don't know how exactly they're doing that. But I'm not super excited about running right into a studio where everybody else is. That's not really social, socially isolating. Yeah. <laughs> well, what I, I know a couple of people what that... that... Doing, um, but me running over to a rehearsal studio with a bunch of our guys and our engineer, it seems, it seems counterproductive. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what I've seen a couple of people do is, is, you know, put up a camera in, um, in like a home rehearsal space or something and, and just one band member playing like a solo acoustic kind of a thing and things like that. Well, I could do that, but, um, we might do that at some point. Okay. But, uh, uh it'll sound crappy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause I yeah. guess if it's on the internet, um, it's going to sound crappy anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but then I, I've kept you for over an hour and I really do appreciate you spending so much time and, and talking with me. Where can, no. Where can people find the album? How, how can they purchase it when it comes out? It's on Ipecac Records, so you can buy it anywhere uh, that you normally buy records. It's cool. distributed in the U.S. Um, hopefully by then, Amazon will be back to selling, to delivering music again. Yeah. Um, we still sell a lot of hard copies of our stuff. I still buy hard copies all the time. That's, I've, I've I got do. like 4,000 CDs in the room below me. So it's. Oh, I'm glad you like CDs. I love CDs. I love them. I absolutely love them. They sound unbelievable. They they do. I don't know why everybody gives them such a, a, a bad rap because they're easy, they're portable. Yeah, they're affordable and they sound great. 
yeah and, and I, I i i understand the love of downloads and i've got downloads but i always i, I don't feel like i completely own it because i i love i'm a i was a photographer for years so i i kind of like seeing the artwork and having that in front of me to open up and read liner notes and stuff while i'm listening so yeah i like that too i'm an amateur photographer myself oh sweet yeah, I have an Instagram account. You should check out Real King Buzzo. Okay, I will ch- I'll check it out right after we record. Um, uh, people can check it out. It's just my photography. There's no selfies. I'm not selling anything on it. I am putting together, finally putting the, I've been taking pictures forever. And once the digital thing happened, yeah, uh, I could never really afford film and all that and developing prior to that. But once a digital thing happened, my ability to take pictures and the amount of pictures I took just exploded. Oh yeah. I went to people for a long time. You should do something. You should do. I just did it for my own, my own enjoyment. Now I have a, for probably coming up on a year, I've had an Instagram account finally where I've been showing off my photography and got a really, really good response from it. So that's awesome. I I didn't realize it. I'll have to check it out uh, after we record. Real King Buzzo. Real King Buzzo. Awesome. And then, and if you trick next to it so you know it's me oh good <laughs> and all it is is pictures that i've taken i'm behind the camera i'm not in front of it it's, oh. it's no pictures of me doing anything it's just me taking pictures of other people or animals doing stuff oh that's cool that's awesome i went to college for it for for uh years and then i did it professionally for a while so uh i i, I yeah i love photography i've loved it for it's one of the one of my passions. Oh man, that's I'm I'm definitely checking out it as soon as we wrap up here. And uh, I, if you want to, if for some reason you're bored and you want to check out my Instagram, because I've I've actually gotten back into shooting a lot of live music. Uh, shot failure, uh, woven hand, uh, cool, uh, fireball ministry. Yeah, I don't think I would be good at that. Oh man, I would love for you to check mine out and, and uh, let me know what you think. Nature, you know. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I do, mostly. I'll check you out. If I would love it if you would check mine out too. It's at absolutely. It's at Mark X Shea. It's M A R C X S H E A. Okay, I'll check it out for sure. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 